This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Kia and welcome to Creatively Wired. This broadcast is on Free FM 89.0 and is also available wherever podcasts are found. Creatively Wired is a moment in time where we chat with artists about what makes them tick. We will explore the way they work, what they are thinking about, and the many varied nuances of the creative process. Make yourself comfortable and let's have a chat with some awesome people who are creatively wired. Uh, Paul and I are joined here today uh, by the one and only Graham Cairns. Graham, thanks for being here. Afternoon, gentlemen. Glad to be here. So, um, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit of a, a, a nutshell about what it is that you do. Um, well, it's a little bit hard to describe. Some people have said I'm a living work of art, and I didn't coin that phrase myself, so I'm, and I'm not 100% comfortable with it. Um, I, I guess I, I, I've been operating in the sort of the odd, odd realm of sort of street theatre, sociology, and art, um, and mixing them all up for some long time, actually, um, ever since I was a university student. Um, and uh, again, I guess I gained a profile through my work in the, in the, in the area of politics, um, through being the leader of the McGillicuddy Series Party, which was around for 16-ish years, give or take an election or two. Um, and that was a... I mean that, and I mention that um, because it's a really good practical example of of the areas in which I was working. You know, so there's, you know, for example, policy formation as an art form. That's a bit peculiar. You know, so that sort of thing, and billboard construction, and and the use of, and the use of satire and self mockery, as almost a sort of a clown like gesturish form of performance as a way of um, highlighting what was right and wrong with the New Zealand political system and. Um, you know, human nature in general, um, and and all the things that went with that. You know, the, the things that you could you could um, put an artistic uh, title on, for example, you know, designing and directing a, a television advertisement for the political party, and you know these sorts of things. So th- you know that was where people dis- people in New Zealand discovered who I was, I guess. Mm-hmm. So from let's take it back one step further to, to childhood. Where, where, where are you born? Uh, Rotorua. Rotorua. Yeah, grew up in Rotorua. Um, nice bit of geography. I think it, the humans have made the place extraordinarily ugly in the pursuit of tourist dollars. And I knew that, and we all my friends knew that as children, though we didn't really have a way of framing that sentence. But we, we knew there was something, well, we thought, a little bit insincere about the town. The way it... Um, and so, my the way I the way I would um, phrase that now would be um, in the pursuit of in the pursuit of the tourist dollar uh, and the the provision of facades and very shallow sorts of enterprises that erodes I believe that erodes the sort of soul of the place. And obviously, there's another entire world in Rotorua below the radar that isn't affected by that. But I'd say, and probably for most towns around the world who are whose 
primary uh, income is from tourism, there would be a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't wait to leave. I, 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 as soon as I finished school, I came over the hill to Hamilton. Right, and that was to mm -hmm. go to university. To go to university. Um, and not that I had any, I mean, I wasn't terribly great academically. I didn't have any particular vocation in mind that I imagined I was training myself for. It's just that I, I'd run out of, I'd run out of plausible things to do that didn't involve working. In, in, in as much as I'd finished the seventh form. Yeah. So I, did, I did, did the sixth form, failed. Did the sixth form again, passed. Did the seventh form, passed. I went, okay, Lord, what am I going to do now? Am I going to go and work in my parents' business? No. What am I going to do? I have no idea. Right, I'll just postpone it. And so I went to university, went to the nearest one that there was to Rotorua. Um, and yeah, found Hamilton. And to me, coming to Hamilton was just a breath of fresh air. I just thought the town was so groovy and so so sensible and nicely laid out. And and all the things that were going on, I found really, really exciting. Uh, what do they call them? Students' arts festivals every couple of years. And I went to a couple of those, and they just blew my mind. They're amazing. I saw Lim's Dance Company when they'd just formed, I think. I, I could be wrong, but I think they're brand new, 77. Um, and all, you know, all sorts of amazing experimental stuff and just really, really interesting, interesting sort of socio-cultural artistic goings-on. Mm. And were you, at this point, making creative things yourself? Not especially. Not in an organised way. Only in a sort of subcultural, below-the-radar kind of way. Um, so I, I had already, even at high school, started... Um, doing public speaking and, and doing satirical things and avant-garde things and, and, and slightly, you know, just sort of naughty, unexpected things um, <clears throat> and also very, very very deadpan things that people are like, what on earth is he doing that for? Um, and I was doing it informally when I, when I came to Hamilton and I didn't re it didn't really take off until... Well, well the first really major... Um, series of things that I did, which I st I'm still slightly involved in, is uh, mock battles. So, mm. two groups of, I guess, street. I mean, if we analyse it, it's it's two groups of street theatre performers, or it's a, it's you know it's 50 or 60 street theatre performers organised into two groups, with two different costumes, improvising, cooperatively improvising the illusion of conflict, for as. Uh, and ad-libbing the whole thing. It's all improvised. Uh, and for somewhere between 30 and 120 minutes in public. No rehearsals, one performance only. And to get enough people to do that required a lot of organisational um, structure, which was new to me. So that that was the first really, you know, th the first time when I had to really think hard. You know, how do you organise people? How mm. do you provide 30 costumes? How do you jolly people along. How do you get volunteers and that many volunteers enthusiastic over the long term to sustain, to sustain the interest and the, you know, and the role playing? Often people who weren't actors as, as well. You know, so yeah, so that, was, that was the first sort of big kind of group organising thing that I started doing. And it worked quite well. I didn't invent it, obviously. Um, I pinched the idea from the Wizard of Christchurch because he, he, he and his followers were already doing that all around New Zealand. Um, and I had observed one of them. In fact, I'd been involved in one of them when I, I did a year at Otago University just because I had this feeling that, it, that there was a, 
okay, I need to go back a step. So we'd already formed the McGillicuddy's in Hamilton, um, and that was very exciting. And I, you know, I, I felt that we were the most interesting people of our year at university. Probably wrong, but that's the sense I got. But going to these uh, these university um, students' arts festivals, I saw really similar groups of people. You know, what who, people who clearly considered themselves to be the most interesting people at their campus, same age as me. I thought, oh, there's something going on at every university in New Zealand. You know, obviously in the world, but that was too big a concept for me. In New Zealand, I want to go and meet all these people and, and do stuff with them. Well, actually, that's not practical because there's too many universities and a bachelor's degree doesn't last long enough. So, okay. so I'm using the mathematical concept of uh, interpolation. I thought, okay, so what's, what's the most unlike... What's the university that's the most unlike Waikato? I figured that's Otago, really old, full of tradition. And so, okay, so if I go to if I go to Waikato and Otago, I can sort of imagine all the middle <laughs> around, you know, so that's, Those are the bookends. Yeah, yeah, those are the bookends. So I went off and did a year there, and it, you know, and met the people that I was wanting to meet, just as it turned out, and flattered with them, and did lots of weird stuff with them that I that we'd never done before. I started a, a, a veggie co-op, food co-op, um, <clears throat> and uh, had this little thing called a. Well, there's this part of Dunedin I renamed, I don't know why, Spaxington Landing. It was, it was right on the Le Leith Stream. And we had the Le Spaxington Landing Comestibles Emporium was our food co-op. And we had, did a huge big float in the, in the capping parade. This, I don't know why I thought of this. Uh, invented this thing called the German nose trumpet. And this little thing, you know, a little thing like a tiny little gramophone horn that you pop, in, pop into your nose and you block one nostril and you, and you, you know, I, mean, I don't think they existed. <laughs> but we made we made a giant one that would only just fit in this room for the capping parade on a big um, seven ton truck, you know, and just this sort of stupid nonsense. And one of the stupid things that I did was, um, and all my friends that I met, they'd done it a bit and got, oh no, nah, it's a bit too, it's a bit too too, too over organised and it's a bit too much. But it was a battle, one of those non-violent. Um, pacifist warfare, mock battley things with the rolled up newspaper swords and flower bombs. And they, they sort of, they primed me up and sent me along and I just turned up and did this thing. I just turned up and it was uh, the Dunedin branch of Alf's Imperial Army. That's the, that's the wizards lot. Although they'd started even before the McGillicuddy's were formed as a thing, a bunch of freaks from Whitehead called the Whitehead Militia. Um, and some of them were still involved. There's, you know, um, people who are probably 15 years older than I was, um, and they're all doing this really, really deadpan droll, kind of almost Beatles-ish, you know, the Beatles, Sergeant Peppers, you know, there was in, the, in the 60s there was all that sort of wear military gear, and mm. but do it in a little bit sort of psychedelic way. Well, it was, the, it was that. You lots know, it of was brass buttons. Lots of brass buttons and flags, but it was more, slightly more deadpan. It was more Victorian reenactment than that military mock military thing that happened, say, in London in 60, I don't know, some 66 or 70, whenever it was, I don't know, I was too young to know. But, and so there was that, and so I just fronted up, and we're battling against um, Knox College, the, so the boys that lived at Knox College, and they were all dressed as women, dressed in drag, and they were being commanded by a fellow who was running for president of the Otago Students University Association, and I think he actually won and was the president next year, Paul Gooley. Uh, you know, so there's all these big, big
big, hairy, rugby-playing types from Southland, dressed as women in frocks with handbags and talking in high, silly voices, versus all these out-of-its pretending to be Victorian gentlemen and gentlewomen. (laughs) It was very, very funny. (laughs) It was really entertaining. The whole thing was improvised and took, I don't know, hour and a quarter. I thought, this is great. What interesting things are... What interesting stuff this is. I'll, I'll bring this back to Hamilton. People in Hamilton, the McGillicuddy's, will love to do this. And mostly I was right. You know, Some thought, nah, nah, it's not for me. But it was, I guess that was the basis of knowing how, learning how to run a street theatre troupe. Knowing how to come up with a concept and a costume and, and an ideology and a brand name and, and a, uh, a rehearsal structure and you know, an act, effectively, which eventually, after we'd been doing street theatre, like more more oddball one-off street theatre in, in Garden Place for, we'd done that for, I don't know, 15 years, just for the sheer hell of it, um, when we eventually formed the limited liability company Free Lunch Limited, so uh, the street theatre and performance art agency in Hamilton, we were, mo- many of us, myself included, were already up and running and knowing how to how to be professional street theatre performers because we'd done our training with these mock battles and these oddball things. Like I remember, I was on a PEP scheme, <clears throat> and it was mostly members of the Big Muffin Serious Band. We were all on this PEP scheme, and uh, one lunchtime, this is part of, we were paid to do this. This is our job. We dressed up as surveyors and out there at Garden Place. We, we got a fake the odd light and this fake whatever that stick is with the numbers on it, you know, that, and, and some rope and some stuff. And I'd painted up this about, I don't know, one metre by three quarters of a metre billboard that looked like an official Hamilton City Council sign. Really, you know, like, yeah, I'm just handwritten it, but I'm, you know, I'm not a bad um, graphic artist. And we mucked around, and we just and we just in overalls, and just sort of just being really droll. It was about the most deadpan piece of street theatre I'd ever ever done. You know, like we were not saying anything to the public, we're not showing off, we're just doing stuff and checking stuff off on our clipboards. And after an hour of mucking around and roping up, roping up, finally roping off this area, working out what it was, and you know, with the plastic tape, you can't come in. Erected the sign, Hamilton City Council sign, proposed site for the second coming of Christ. <laughs> you know, so just that kind of stuff. You know, that just that we did that for years and years and years. And finally, um, when uh, Mark Servian started Free Lunch Street Theatre Company, uh, we had half a dozen. You know, I was in half a dozen little acts. You know, the gumboot dancing and some people with red rubber latex masks, all doing synchronised, improvised thing like we're sort of aliens on a package tour cameras and uh, we had the Aunt Fanny sewing circle very similar to the Knox College ch- chaps, you know, men and, men and women talking in high voices and cleaning things and being insulting and weird and getting away with murder because you, know, you can't really argue with old women even if, they, <laughs> even if they are young men dressed as old women, they just get it, you know, and all these sorts of things and so we then were able to go professional quite well. What was motivating you at the time? Like, What, what was making you to do that particular type of creative yeah, output, what what was most exciting to you about doing that? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I guess I mean, you, I mean, you want you, you want a sensible answer, and it would be, I guess, because I had done a sociology degree, and I had done a sociology degree because I thought those sorts of thoughts. You know, I 
I was very interested to look at society, look at what made people tick, look at you know what our belief systems were and why we believed things and and you know and, and how easily modified people's opinions are and you know that, that whole sort of socio-political thing that fasc has always fascinated me my mm. whole life even when I was just a wee kid obviously um, I just didn't have a name for it also I had done a lot of acting at school and at university I'm not I've got no training but I'd always wanted to be in plays I'd always been in plays um, and I guess I'd always liked a very elaborate deadpan joke, an intelligent deadpan joke that was entertaining, but also was making an intelligent point. And also I liked being provocative and freaking people out a bit. Mm. And did, did that come from when, anywhere in particular, or is that just innately in I think I think that's innate. Although um, it was certainly reinforced and bolstered by um, my time at Rotorua Boys High School, the, the, the single-sex boys' school, and very draconian school at the time, I don't know what it's like now, that I, that, had, that I had attended. And at that school, because it was so regimented and so severe, uh, that encouraged lots of really creative rebellion. Mm. So the more subversive and and the more cleverly subversive and almost insane and off the wall and wacky and loopy and peculiar and hard to fathom a boy could be, the cooler he was. Right. Mm. So I got lots and lots of reinforcement in my teenage years for being wacky and loony and surprising and bizarre. And I was by no means the most wacky, loony or surprising or bizarre of my schoolmates. But that was the social milieu that we operated in. And there must have been an element of um, Hamilton at that time. I mean, like you say, there was some cool, lots of cool stuff happening. You know, yeah, you, uh, uh, the gigs and stuff like that. But there, no doubt, was also a deeply conservative streak running through the society. Was there an element of like being in the boys' school, but a, you know, in, in a city where it's like, what happens if I provoke this thing? It what, yeah, it took. You know, me what can we get away with? Kind of. It took me a long time to make the transition from subculture to culture in, in, the, in my audience. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I was pretty comfortable doing any crazy nonsense at Rotary Boys High School that I could dream up. And then at university, I was sort of quiet for a couple of months until I got a measure of it. And then by about my third or fourth year, I felt comfortable doing anything crazy. Like, in my th I think it was my fourth year, I ran for president of the Waikato Students' Union with a whole bunch of pro-agricultural, anti-academic policies based, based around turning the university back into a dairy farm. <laughs> <laughs> Which, considering that universities have sort of gone more privatised and, and, and money-grubbing in, in recent decades, it was, I, was, I think I was ahead of my time. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> um, we, can, we can blame you for the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was really, really absurd. It's absolutely absurd and, and ironic and, and insane. <clears throat> but I wouldn't have dreamed of coming to Garden Place and doing anything like that. You know, I, I, I had no no measure of the general general town. <clears throat> excuse me, until uh, my good friend, the late and sadly departed Cecil Godfrey Murgatroyd, who I'd never met at that stage, turned up in Hamilton. Uh, this is nineteen 
1980, late 79, early 80, Christmas 79, early, early 1980. And by then I was doing quite a bit of street theatre and I'd been editor of Nexus and we'd, you know, I'd organised lots of stuff. We'd organised the capping parade and the, all sorts of stuff. Um, and he turned up and began public oratory in Garden Place every single day. And he was really provocative and really well-researched re well and really odd. And, I mean, he really pushed some buttons and people would throw him in. The, there used to be a fountain. I don't know if you remember the fountain that was out there. That's sort of like a public baths kind of thing. They'd throw him in that, you know, and he was pelted with all sorts of stuff. He was... He took a lot of risks. He was really, really bold. And he did really provocative things. Um, and I remember... He said to me one day, we'd have him around, and he was living on no income whatsoever, like not on the dole, not on any income, just from the sale of... of um, so he was, a, once again, I mentioned the Wizard of Christchurch. He was a follower of the Wizard of Christchurch. He was a, a, a apprentice wizard, third class, and the wizard, wizard had sent him to Hamilton, as you know, because the wizard had people all over New Zealand, and he'd sent him to Hamilton. Uh, and he, I mean, this Mugatron was starving, and we'd have him around every he was every couple of weeks and feed him right up. Um, and he was pretty hard to handle socially because he was just on transmit mode and he spoke at about 130 decibels flat out, you know, for hours and hours and hours. He didn't quite know how to de-roll at that stage. And we go, oh, Lord, okay, Mugatroy's coming around. And we just sort of, you know, make, make him some dinner and just, you know, take do tag team listening to him. <laughs> but the thing he did say to me was, yeah, you McGillicuddies, you... you you're all very well, you know, you're famous at the at the university, but you're nobody in town. You know, you call yourself the lead... By then I was the lead of Hamilton. Lead of Hamilton. No one's ever heard of you. Don't be ridiculous, you know. You're just a... You, you know, you, when are you going to make the transition from subculture to culture? Oh, actually, he's right. He's dead right. I've been I've been safely operating within the subcultural zone, my safe zone, the whole time. Part of what's satisfying for you as an artist is that you're actually highlighting that we live in a society where it's possible where people would take this stuff seriously. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm it's a, kind of, if, if, you know, there's the old... Sort I of, mean, other societies, I'd have had my head cut off by now, wouldn't I? Sure, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's just too subversive. Yeah. So if there's a sort of idea of, you know, artists holding a mirror up to society or however yeah. you want to put that, then part and of that is going, you know... You people are ridiculous. And, and yes, that's right. And the thing about it, the thing about the mirror is, the mirror is dependent upon the viewer. So for some pe people, it's a really unflattering mirror that's being held up. For others, you know, like some people go, "Oh, I see, that's a great joke," and others go, "Ooh, that's terrible," you know. And so it's it's a distorting mirror. It's an in infinitely variable distorting mirror that we're holding up mm. to society. Yeah, based on where you're standing. And based on where the observer is standing, yeah. we're just providing enough of a bundle of information for them to go, for, for them to have to stop and think. Mm. And they'll come to all manner of conclusions. Because I believe that's a more interesting way for people to live than not having any of those thoughts. Mm. So provoking people to be furious makes their life more exciting than where they were just having a bland, <laughs> a bland day, you know? They must have been very grateful to you. <laughs> <laughs> well... Possibly not in, for the first 20 years, but eventually, you know, eventually, I don't know. I mean, we, another thing we did, which was, and this was really, really on the edge, and I didn't realise at the time how 
provocative it was going to be and how many raw nerves it was touching was when we crucified Santa Claus in a Christmas parade. Wow. <laughs> and, and some people have not forgiven me for that. But, you know, I think it was still a valid thing to do because the Christmas parades had got really commercial and crass and horrid. You know, what we did was crass and horrid as well, according to certain people's belief systems. Um, but the Christmas parades were really vile. They were just huge curtain cider trucks full of stuff. It was, an, it was just a mobile advertisement. There was almost no, there's no art, no humour, um, there's almost no celebration in the parade anymore, even though when I first started being involved in them in 82, they were very, very amusing, elaborate uh, local, yeah, local celebrations with all the little floats done by little groups, community groups. And they are that again, although not quite as funny, but still very community-minded. But for a period of about five or six years in the middle 90s, they are really crass advertising. Just advertisements for just stuff. Corporate floats. Just corporate floats. Mm. And that bothered me because Santa Claus is, you know, whatever you believe on Santa Claus and you know, where it came from and St. Nicholas and Santa Claus or whatever, you know, the, the contemporary Santa Claus paradigm is that if you're good, you get gifts. Now, and, and so these trucks were covered in stuff, none of which was free. None of them were gifts. It was all mm. merchandise. And the parade was being run by a commercial radio station whose name I shan't mention. And so they sort of had, they had, they had a stranglehold on Santa Claus. They'd hijacked Santa Claus. And they still had a Santa Claus in the float going, yo, ho, ho, yo, ho, ho, everybody. Uh, but none, they weren't giving anything away. So I thought that, I thought they'd, that um, if they had hijacked Santa Claus and were making him, advertise their wares and they so he, the the pure concept of gifts as a reward for certain behaviors uh that had been stolen and so we put a rival santa claus and we crucified him and it wasn't and it was uh it was the time of the employment's contract act was coming in and so it was a whole bunch of elves who are having a revolution and downing tools who cru who crucified him, you know, and they had placards like placards like, "No more Christmas slavery," spelled S L E I G H, very you know, and "Yo bloody ho," and "Make your own damn presents," and and "Santa ruined my marriage," and uh, uh, "Yuck, this is bad taste," and "Ban this float," and, you know, and and other bits of self mockery, and so it, there was a context there, and it was really it was it was too raw. A third of the kids were upset. A third of the kids thought it was funny, and a third of the kids were just going, wow, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> and we were kicked out of the parade mm. by the organisers, but then I went, oh, hang on. Um, now, when the parade goes down the main street of any town in New Zealand, Hamilton, Hamilton being um, no exception, the road is officially closed, so it's not a normal carriageway. You know, all those, all those laws are suspended temporarily. Um, so we could perhaps walk down the street after the parade, not part of the parade, just walk down the street before the road gets opened and we wouldn't be breaking the law and we wouldn't be causing anybody any danger and we wouldn't be a danger to ourselves. And so I phoned up the police and said, you know, I ran this past them 
I was quite open to so we've been kicked out of the parade. We've been in the parade for I don't know fifteen years at that stage. Um, you know, we wanted to float, which is you know considered too provocative, but I think there's good reasons for it. I didn't you know bore them with the, all the details. Is the can we walk down the road? It does, and the, and the policeman, to his credit, went, yeah, the road's officially closed until most of the rubbish is picked up, so that's probably three or four minutes. So, okay, thanks. So it would be okay. You, you wouldn't frown on us walking down the street without, okay, and that's fine. And to their credit, they, it went, the, the parade went, police car, crappy little parade full of curtains out of trucks, police car, revolutionary elves with a crucified Santa Claus, police car. <laughs> <laughs> They put on a separate police car for us. Wow. Yeah. You might have needed it. Yeah, we might have. I mean, yeah, well, there were some really furious people who'd been, who'd been wound up by the radio station who had a vested interest in keeping us out. Mm. That's an interesting example of really extreme stuff. Now, I wasn't trying on that occasion to upset people, but I was trying very hard to make a point that, that what, what we're accepting as a Christmas parade, as a major fest, festivity for the year, a big, big, big deal in our society is woefully substandard and has been hijacked by commercial reasons and has turned tacky and insubstantial and is an insult to us. And I don't know necessarily that it was our work, but certainly the parades, are, you know, it's a different organisation now running it and the parades are way, way better, you know. I mean, I'd like to take credit for it. Mm. You know, I stuck my neck out to do that but I think that sort of that sort of thing is really, really important. Mm. If, our, if our major annual celebrations amount to nothing, what kind of culture do we have? So, do you think people got it at the time, uh, as well as being defended? I don't know, because we'd added all those layers of complexity with the revolutionary elves, and you know, all, you know so, and we we tend not to. And this is an, this is another another way in which myself and all the people I work with tend to operate, we don't come out and say, we believe this, therefore we're standing here saying this. Right. You know, we, we, it's not direct process. It's not direct. Oh, sorry, protest. It's, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And there are many, many layers of complexity. And I, I've always found that, that direct protest quite nauseating. I dislike it enormously. Uh, and so I suspect a lot of people didn't quite comprehend it. But they didn't need to necessarily, because all they have to do is enjoy the re the result of our protest, hmm. which is the parades are now much better. Yeah. yeah. So, as a street theatre performer, you're being watched by an audience. But again, one would hope so. Well, <laughs> but I, what I'm what I'm going to ask is. You're also in a position where you can quite clearly see the audience who are watching you. Yes. Where on stage, that's a little bit more limited because yeah. of lighting and things. It must be kind of fascinating to see how different people react differently to you as the different characters you play on the street. Yeah, it's, it's certainly the case. Um, street street theatre is way more immediate. Uh, and under street theatre, I'd also put, say, busking music, which if you're a good busker, is theatrical and is tailored to the moment and to the audience and to the setting. Uh, and you're quite right, you do, get, you do get lots of much more immediate feedback. Um, although with theatre, you you're not always in a position to not see the audience. Yep. So you, you know, out, outdoor summer Shakespeare, for example, you can see the audience, although there's 
too many of them really for you to really take them into account. <clears throat> and some plays during the day or plays where you, you intentionally have the, the house lights up. But with street theatre, invariably you don't have rehearsed lines. In, mostly it's improv. And it's, you've, you've got together a character or a scenario or something or an act or, you know, like, by act I mean a series of physical things and you're just narrating it, you know, like a juggler has got a spiel or, you know. The street theatres, the, you know, the ones that I've done in recent years that, are, that aren't just an act, you know, that we've been hired to do, but, you know, are really actually a one-off thing is, like, for example, this, this, the anti-census the non-census activities that I do, and thinking back to the one where I, just outside your, your, your building here, where I got myself frozen uh, and declared legally dead to avoid having to fill out the census. You know, so we hadn't rehearsed it. I'd, got the, I'd asked maybe eight or ten people to come and play specific roles. I'd given them an idea where in the, in the thick, where in the procedure their bit was going to be, and I had a, made some props, you know, a great big huge chest freezer which I'd painted up as a coffin. And we got some, you know, and the whole thing was improvised around a theme. Now, I'm not a great improv person. You know, you'll never see me on, on stage doing improv combat stuff. I, I'm hopeless, hopeless at it. But we all knew the general story. And we were all just telling that story. We knew the beginning. We had a, we had a concept of the middle and we knew what the end was going to be. I was going to jump into... Uh, a friend of mine's ex-ambulance. We're going to going to Well, I wasn't going to jump. I was going to be picked up, white, white and stiff as a board, and put in the ambulance. And we're going to zap on down the road with everyone going. Nee, 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 nee. And in the middle, anything could have happened. So if somebody from the audience had gone, um, "He's not dead," then. Probably some of the some of the performers, maybe the one playing the doctor, who was a doctor but not of medicine, or you know, they would have known that they had the leeway to improvise their way back onto the general story. One would assume, and I think that's that style of performance where anything could happen, particularly in response to the audience. That's I would guess that's the I think the the grittiest, gutsiest. Sorts of sort of performance there, there, there's ever been, particularly because it's on the same level as the audience, on street level, or you know, we're on the same level. We're in the, breathing the same air. We've got the same light. We're just like the audience, except we're putting a thing on. And I, I, I think, I mean, I just find that absolutely fascinating. I love to watch it when it's done well. I adore watching it when it's done well, and I get a huge kick out of doing it when it's done at least half well. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a really great thing. Um, in recent years, I've I, I don't do that so much anymore. <clears throat> I've gone one step even more more deadpan or subtle, I guess. So, because there, you know, the the you, you you know we're performing in the round, and it's the audience and the performers are sort of all the same people, but you can tell who the audience is, and some members of the public walk through, and the audience, audience goes, ah, they're walking right across the stage, ha, <laughs> you know, not realising, thinking that it's just a bunch of people. These days, I'm mostly, um, I'm not performing so much as, but I'm there in a costume uh, with props and with a scenario, but I'm helping people from, the, in the, from members of the public to do some art. 
and I'm thinking of... So it's almost like getting people involved in the street theatre, if it was street theatre, though I don't know if it is, but in a much gentler way than, say, a juggler who might invite someone up from the audience to hold the, hold the scimitar or, you know, or that sort of audience interactions. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, for example, there's that bicycle-powered sewing machine that me and my partner have. We get people to come and invent a flag, and I help, help them draw it and design it, and then I help them cut it out in fabric and pin it down. Then they hop on the bike and pedal the bike, and the bike runs the sewing machine, and Adrian sews it up, and suddenly there's a flag. And, so, and it, it looks like it's a theatre show, but I think it isn't. I think it's just some kind of theatri theatrically inspired arts facilitation program. It's like a participatory art making. It is, yeah. But we're, but we're using all the, all the techniques of street, well, many of the techniques of street theatre. Well, there's another one where one of us will dress up as in a white gown that's got a whole lot of black lines on it. And people are invited to come along and throw a dice, choose a colour and fill in one block. And eventually... We, uh, when enough blocks are filled in, you realise, oh, that, ga that gown that that person's wearing, that's got a whole lot of fish drawn on it, or a whole lot of dinosaurs, or a whole lot of birds, or vegetables, or, you know, that sort of thing. And people go, oh, no, I can't paint, I can't paint. You, no, you can paint. You just have to, you just have to stay inside the line. Oh, what colour? Can, can I choose my colour? No, you can't. Sorry, you can't. Choose your colour. <laughs> no, you, you're not a good artist enough yet to choose your colours. <laughs> this is just a training exercise. Here, you roll the dice... And that'll choose which of the six colours I've brought for you. You, you know, like this, that sort of thing. You know, I really like doing that sort of thing. Mm. Probably makes people a lot less angry. It does. It's not <laughs> provocative. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not. It's. I mean, it's. It, there's a little bit of sociology involved. Basically, I mean, the main thing is most people could be an artist, but they don't think that they are. Mm. But they get a, it's a generous kind of way in for them, isn't it? It's it is. Not, it's non-threatening. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. It's, yeah. So I guess we're using the entertaining, the entertaining appearance and the entertaining, the unusual concept as a way of jollying them along through the, through the, through the conventional gates of threaten. Hmm. So suddenly they find they're in this thing because they're, they're, they're attracted to it because it looks interesting and they're, so they've actually stepped inside the art process before they even realised that they're about to get scared and run away. Yeah. That, that's, that's how I think it works. It's, yeah. it's such a rewarding experience, I think, for those involved. I hope so. Um, it certainly looks that way on the, on the outside when I've seen it um, mm. in the gardens. And, and it just... Um, I think that role that you play within that context is a really powerful one for society now, differently powerful to the more provocative things and the, yeah. the more satirical things because it's empowering people to to be involved in a thing and, and to, to make something and it happens easily and it's, it, it's, a, it's an amazing little mm. um, ecosystem that you create through that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I, I guess... Um, for me, for decades, I was trying to provoke people to think. Now I'm trying to encourage people to act, and I think that's the difference. Plus, also, I'm 62 years old now. I've 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 done all my angry years, you know. Like I, <laughs> I, I need to mature. I don't need to jump up and down. And 
scream blue murder about oddball things and be really obtuse and, and hard to understand <laughs> and get up people's noses. I've got up people's noses. Tick, I've done that, you know. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's, the job for, that's the job for crazy, tough, young street theatre performers. Are they, are they around? I have no idea. I yeah. imagine, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe meeting together in public places isn't such, a, such an imperative these days. Mm. Certainly Garden Place has been gutted by the, by the planning that allowed all the shop, shops to move north to the base. So, you know, I mean, it's not the same place. This used to be the Village Green. I mean, I know it's not like a silly old codger bleating on, you know, <clears throat> but it really was the modern equivalent of that. Uh, any day of the week except Sunday, uh, it was full of hundreds of people. Even Saturday morning was quite busy, but during the week it was absolutely jam-packed with people mm. who, you know, office workers and, and shoppers and who, who were all up for a little bit of entertainment at lunchtime. Mm. So the environment was more conducive to Phenom street theatre anyway. Oh, phenomenally. It was the best outdoor performance site in New Zealand mm. just because of the acoustics, the climate, and the number of people who were there. And also the layout. The layout's been kind of knackered. There were lots, there were previous, previously there was four different zones where you could perform and there'd been almost no sound, bleed, or sight line interference. Right. So it's been, it's been sort of, in the, in, yeah, it's been made less conducive mm. to outdoor performance, even though probably the designers thought they were making it more conducive. There's not so many nooks and crannies. There are no nooks and crannies. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a one magnificent project that you've always dreamed of doing, but for some reason haven't been able to pull oh, off yet? God. Um, mostly it's really big stuff that would require too much practical, more practical ability than I have. Because I also, I mean... The prop making and the playing with gadgets for me is almost as fascinating as the performing mm. and the sociology. Um, and I would like to have a steam train in the Waikato. I'll never do it because I don't have my boilermakers ticket and I don't have the finance. And you know, why would I do it? You know, like, I mean, just, who, who else is going to do it? You know? But I reckon steam is magnificent. Yeah. <laughs> Um, from from a performance point of view, I can't think of anything. Though I know as soon as this interview ends, I'll think of half a dozen. Sure, yeah. It's in interesting. So, from a straight acting point of view, um, and I, I mean I'll mention this just because I can't think of any other way of answering your question, and it's only vaguely related. From a straight acting point of view, in the world of Shakespeare, supposedly for a male actor, playing King Lear is the pinnacle of your career. Mm. And I'd heard people saying this for decades and decades while I was doing Shakespeare. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, King Lear. <laughs> Nonsense, God. Bunch of snob bollocks. <laughs> and then I accidentally got promoted to the job of King Lear when King Lear was put on from another character. I was playing Gloucester, who's a similar, it's a sort of subplot. And the chap playing Lear, who was, would have been way better than me, he resigned because he's too busy. And I got promoted. And I did the character, played King Lear and Lear, and... Man, they were right. It's a fan it's the most fantastic part for a male, elderly male actor. It's incredible. And I, I'd heard actors going, Oh, after Leah, there's nothing. And I think, well, actually, 
I can't think of anything I want to do. <laughs> That's, it was, it's so complex and so interesting. And it's, you know, after that you go, well, I've climbed that ladder. There are no more rungs on that ladder. Mm. Yeah. So that's not an answer to your question, but I thought I should mention it because it's it, it is a hell of a pl- hell of a good play, and I, d- I do want to promote Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah, the Big Muffin Serious Band. What was the kind of um, reason for that, and and why do you think it's been so enduring? Yeah, why well, it's been enduring, I I don't know. I, I'll, I'll guess at that in a, in a second or two. Um, how did it start? It was on that same scheme that we were employed supposedly to do that proposed site for the second coming of Christ performance <clears throat> and it was a city council run scheme for unemployed actors, musicians and graphic artists and the graphic, graphic artists run the, by the Hamilton City Council? Yes, by the Hamilton City Council. My goodness. Yep and there were <laughs> oh something like about 45 of us all on a de- all unemployed previously, all on a decent pay with with some premises to operate out of it was he's dead now, unfortunately. Dave Finlay, a sport, he was the, he was the person responsible for it. He was in, into sports, and he, by his own confession, he says he'd come to our meetings. I don't know anything about art, and I, I, I can't pretend that I do, but I know that it's good good for society, and I really like what you people are doing, uh, and good on you, and keep doing it, you know. <laughs> and he, you know, he was and he was genuinely encouraging. And he genuinely didn't know anything about what we were doing, but he just he, he really didn't like it, and he dreamt the thing up. So there are these three schemes running together. Uh, the graphic artist one, they saw the writing was on the wall that, that when the schemes are going to close, and that was the genesis of the art makers group. Uh, and the, the, the music and the theatre one both sort of just fizzled, but the theatre one turned into, well... Okay, no, no, I'm exaggerating here. Under the theatre one's auspices, the slip of the tongue theatre company, who still more or less do the summer outdoor summer Shakespeare, that was formed there. So that that's its legacy. Mm. Uh, and interestingly, it was the it was the also the theatre one, but in conjunction with the music group, uh, its legacy, I guess, is the Big Muffin Serious Band. And so it started on that scheme. There was there were three of us initially, two people employed as musicians and one actor. I was the actor, and the two musicians were Jim Fulton um, and a fellow called, also dead, uh, Ian Coldham Fussell, uh, and he'd been a keyboard player in pub bands. And we didn't have enough work to do. We were doing kids' shows and old folks' homes and and having long, tedious, um, um, uplifting meetings and there still wasn't enough for us to do. So we there was a ukulele at work and someone donated us a t-shirt bass. I had a ukulele and knew one song. Jim was a guitarist and knew several songs. And he and I both had an interest as it turns out. I don't know, I just, I'd only just met him. We both had an interest in 1920s, 1930s music. And uh, Ian Coldham Fussell, he could play anything. And... So we just started doing 1920s tunes and rock parodies, parodies of rock songs, and thought it would last until the scheme ended. So seven months, or six months, we got an extra month, seven, you know, seven months total. Uh, 37 years later, it's still going, yeah. which is extraordinary. Why is it going? Okay, so it's going, I guess, because 
and it and it, it's really similar to some of the, some of the, some of the things I've been saying previously. So it's it's sociological and sociocultural. So we we take this we take songs that are really were really good but quirky and are forgotten and bring them back and go look people this is what music has been like it's been this unusual and people oh okay that's a weird song and people think we've composed the song we haven't it's just also we get songs that are stupidly popular from I don't know 1960 through to yesterday and deconstruct them and make fun of them by putting them playing them in the wrong genre and people. <laughs> And people have heard these songs on high rotate for too long. They like that, mm. you know. So that's funny, and we make comments about it. We lie. We, 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 so the Big Muffin Serious Band builds up background stories, just like the street theatre troops were building up background stories and justifying. You know, so you build up a whole big reason why the, you're performing the song, which is all nonsense, and you pepper it with a few facts, a few genuine facts. People sit there. They go, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." Okay. <laughs> so, but but the reason why it's survived is because it's entertaining, and the reason why it's entertaining is because it did a lot of busking early on. And and just like what we're saying about street theatre, uh, you need to be jolly entertaining if you if you're trying to make money from busking, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to respond to the audience, and you need to be able to entertain them. And so, look, people are walking down the street. And they think they're going shopping or whatever. You know, they weren't thinking. I'm going to go downtown and see if there's some people playing music and see if that's into you know and cheer myself up. They're just walking past you. You've got to stop them. You've got to stop them through being loud, uh, through being through being dressed really interestingly and playing bizarre instruments, or being bloody amazing, or and or be, and yeah. being bloody amazing, and saying things that are funny and provocative and weird. And they'll stop and go, what? What is this? What? And then you then you entertain them. Oh, okay. And they're entertained. Then you send somebody around with a hat, and they collect their money. And you then you do one more song for free for them, and then stop, and they go away. That's just like a concert that we do on stage. It's exactly the same format. So, so it's a busking act taken to a concert format. Hmm. Uh, why is it still around? Because unbe unbeknownst to us, the ukulele was about to become. The 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 international phenomenon of the world, people's instrument of torture of choice, in the late nineties. So around about when the band should really have dissolved, suddenly everyone's going ukulele, ukulele. You guys are the king of ukulele. You've been doing it since it was uncool. Wow, show me some chords. Show me some chords. Teach me this. Teach me that. And it was. So we then went, okay, sure. Come to our ukulele festival. Ukulele festival, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're the guests. What? Really? Okay, sure. But we don't really... No, it doesn't matter. You've got a ukulele, but we don't... No, it doesn't matter. Just, just come and show us what you do. And, you know, so even though we started off being a u subversive ukulele thing at folk festivals and at rock concerts and people going, what? Oh, God, I see. Yeah, and being, being, the, being the other... Suddenly, while still being the other and not really being very much of a ukulele band at all, suddenly we got embraced by the ukulele revolution. And, it, and I, we should have known it was coming because it's the fourth time the ukulele has been popular in the world. You know, so it, anything anything's got moves like a pendulum, doesn't goes in and out of fashion. So it just happens to be to have come into fashion, and it's still in fashion. And the reason why it's in fashion is because. It's given people a chance to meet together face-to-face -face once a week. And so there's all these ukulele groups of people my age and older who'd never played an instrument and now are playing an instrument and are hanging out together 
and you know, sharing cake and scones and red wine on a Sunday afternoon or whatever, all around the country, probably all around the world. So it's you know, the ukulele is it's sort of like the catalyst for the re, for the for for social interaction in a world where people don't necessarily have very many good reasons to interact face to face. So it's the excuse, and so it'll carry on for a long time, I suspect, because of that. And there's something so powerful about communal music making. Absolutely, yeah. So there is that as well. So, you know, and I look at music. I'm not really a musician, but I, you know, I have a sociologist's approach to music. I, I see three zones in music. One, zone one, probably the most important, playing by yourself for yourself. And all these people have started doing that, that they never did it before. And that's just a way of making your, your life, all those years between birth and death, more rewarding for you. You know, you can, you, you, you've got nothing to do. You don't have a book to read. You, don't, you, know, you can pick up an instrument and just go, oh, I'm just going to play my favorite song. Or I'm going to make up a new song or I'm going to see weird ways I can play that chord or whatever. You know, like it's, it's a way of living, living in your skin and enjoying yourself more. Two, very similar, but with, with a group, with other people. So the energy is still going in. So you're having a jam. And that's what these ukulele groups are. And there's a huge leap an enormous leap to zone three. We should call it zone seven, really, because it's such a big leap. Performing. Mm -hmm. The energy's all going out. It's not a group thing. And although some solo performers and some groups manage to do it, a lot, a lot don't. They, they, they provide... They don't understand what it takes to do a performance. And so they, do, they provide a really, really boring show, unfortunately. <laughs> And they probably should be either taken in hand and shown how to perform or convinced that zone three is not for them. It's, you know, and zone one and two, that's the important thing, yeah. I reckon. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I think there's something as well about the ukulele where it's, it's not overly serious as an instrument. No, no. Yeah. And I think that is maybe for people who are looking for a way into music. That's right. Um, then yeah. it's sort of less threatening. It's a non-threatening non starter. Learning yeah. a clarinet or a violin or something. It's a very non-committal instrument. Or a well. guitar. You, you can pick one yeah. up for 45 bucks. Yeah, you whatever. can pick it up and you can put it down again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you won't have even burnt any, <laughs> any calories because they're so light, so small, so portable, you know. Yeah. And that, you know, they are, they're quite an amazing thing. And their history is interesting as well, you know. So it's a Portuguese thing made by Port people from the island of Madeira who were trying to escape from a, a drought and a famine who went all around the world and they went to many, many places and you'll see similar-sized instruments everywhere where the Portuguese mariners went, all through Indonesia and all sorts, all over the place, and in Hawaii. And in Hawaii, Hawaiian people and Portuguese people together made that as a thing based on the original Portuguese instruments, the cavaquinho and the marcheta braguinha, I think is how you say it. Mm. You know, so it's, so that's, that's, how, that's how it took off. Then there's, you know, the, then there's the uh, 1920s and 30s revival of it, and the, and the Brits made it popular with, it as a, with a banjo body, same tuning though. Then there's a 60s surfing thing, which is, I picked it up as, a, uh, as that was fading. As, as a child, I learnt ukulele. Um, and it was con just considered to be a really good training um, ground for learning guitar, which I never did. And then, you know, so from about 1970 through to about mid-1990s, it was unknown. It was just this kid's toy. People didn't even know what, the, what to call it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now it's, now it's away again. It's fascinating. Well, we are out of time. I'll bet we are. So um, <laughs> do you have any one final, uh, final thing to, to leave listeners on, one 
piece of uh, amazing advice for uh, engaging in an artistic and creative life? Um, do you want... Okay, I, I've got two. Okay. One is... Uh, the life of an artist is not necessarily well rewarded and or well recognised in New Zealand. And you can get very poor and you can go slightly crazy. So it's for both of those reasons, I strongly recommend also having a trade or having a practical thing that you do, a, a hands-on, just a processy thing. Um, also, particularly if, you, you know, if it's just a... And, and also there's no... something. Some, okay, I'll give my own example. <clears throat> this, is, this, is, this is the balance I, I found. So doing really extreme street theatre and raising native trees from seed. So they counteract each other. They, sorry, they balance each other out. So you want, to, you want to balance in your life, I reckon, if you're going to be an artist, because you can get poor and mad. But if you've got a practical thing that you do where, the, where you just do it, and you get paid for it, but you don't actually get any ego boost from completing it. It just is done. You do that one, then you do the next one, the next one, next one. It doesn't matter what it is, vacuuming cars or whatever it, you know, whatever it is, some mundane task that requires no stress and is repetitive, that's a really also a good fertile ground for dreaming up new, new ideas. When ideas just come into your head because you're doing this thing that you're just going to be doing for three hours and your body's just doing the thing, doing the thing, and you're getting paid and you don't have to worry about money because it's, it's flowing into your bank account. Oh, great new idea. And also, you've got more sane. You know, so the, the mundane tasks ground you and the artistic tasks make you interesting. That's my serious advice. My, my non-serious advice, if a thing is worth doing, surely it's worth doing it humorously. <laughs> that's, that's such an excellent note to wrap up on yeah, awesome thank you so much Graham um, it's been an absolute pleasure thank you folks mm. thank you for joining us this show has been broadcast on Free FM 89.0 and is brought to you by Creative Waikato have a great day for more episodes use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.